KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Expected Cyber Monday sales indicate a holiday shopping spree this year. It is expected to be a record breaker. They're expecting just north of $11 billion. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Health officials hope Thanksgiving get-togethers haven't made a bad flu season worse. We're already at 6,000 cases, and there's still obviously time left to count. That's the highest in at least 10 years for November. UC San Diego plans a forum on the recent climate summit COP27, and a new holiday destination for San Diegans could be a visit to the Cheech. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Whether it's last week's Black Friday sales or today's Cyber Monday bargains, the outlook for holiday shopping is very optimistic. Inflation worries don't seem to be hampering what some experts say is a pent-up demand from consumers. Online sales on Black Friday set a new record of over $9 billion, but the National Retail Sales Federation expects 67% of shoppers will actually get outside and visit traditional brick-and-mortar stores for at least some of their holiday buying. Joining me is Miro Kopik, a marketing expert and professor at San Diego State University. Miro, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Maureen. You talk about retailers having a really substantial inventory right now. So does that mean that supply chain issues that we've been up against for the last couple of years are not affecting holiday items? Thankfully, no. Uh, To give you some perspective, last year in 2021, over 26 categories of gifting items were affected by supply chain shortages. This year, it's nine. And for example, you know, the iPhone 14, because of some issues with chips, uh, you know, there may not be as big an inventory in the marketplace today, but overall across apparel and shoes, technology items and toys, there are plenty of goods for consumers to look at, shop for, uh, versus last year where retailers were saying to consumers, if you don't come in now, you probably won't find what you want later. That's less of an issue this year. On what kinds of items will shoppers get the best deals? Clothing and and footwear, number one. There's a lot of excess inventory, especially at mass merchants. You're going to see discounts in some cases. You know, the the Banana Republic, for example, is offering 60% site-wide throughout this whole Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend. You didn't see 60% across an entire set of products for the last couple of years. Technology and electronics, computers. There's actually a glut of computers. Normally, computers are not the big thing during the holidays. It's back to school. They're going to have a big discounts. Smart technology, smartphones, TVs are, are going to be a big deal, and audio, so speakers and, and, and the like 
all around the tech space. And then toys are going to see a big a set of discounts. Manufacturers have a big glut of, of a whole range of toys and games. So you're going to see bigger discounts on toys for, for young kids. Are we starting to see how in-store and online shopping are working hand in hand for consumers? Yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, retailers have really embraced this concept of omni-channel marketing and, and, and sales, both where the, uh, their online uh, activity drives people in store or vice versa. I think the, and, the, and what, what I mean by that is if you go into a store, let's say a Macy's, uh, and you find an item that's the same item elsewhere for less, they will on the spot honor that lower price. The curbside pickup has kind of not been as effective this year because, you know, the concerns around COVID have not been as great. But buy online and pickup in store is seeing very robust pickup by consumers. And what we know is that consumers tend to buy a lot more once they're in store rather than when they buy online. Uh, consumers are a bit more mercenary when they're online. They buy their item and they're out. Whereas in the store, they're more prone to look around and maybe they'll see something that can you know, fit the bill on, on their gift list. Is this online shopping synchronicity helping just big retailers like chain stores or uh, is it also helping small businesses? It's a little harder to tell on small businesses. I think um, the, the small businesses, even though they do have pretty aggressive online presences, uh, whether through if they have if they're on, on on say Etsy or on Shopify, those different platforms allow them to communicate with their customer base. Um, you know, a lot of small businesses do very well. Uh, through social media. So they don't really lose out as much as they would have a couple of years ago. But certainly the, the bigger piece is that it does benefit where there are clusters of stores. So for example, if there's a location in a mall, it could be a small independent retailer or a big a national retailer, the malls still are a great place uh, for consumers to go. And this year, especially millennials and Gen Z are heading to the malls for the holiday experience. So they're looking at the pop-ups, they're looking at the entertainment, the dining, and just kind of being there. And, and that's kind of what's driving a lot of the traffic this year is the Gen Z and millennial consumers. What are the predictions for this Cyber Monday? Is it expected to be a record breaker? It is expected to be a record breaker. They're expecting just north of $11 billion. That makes it the single largest online shopping day in the United States. And it's going to be an increase of over 5% from a year ago. And over this entire Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend, there's going to be north of $35 billion sold between Thanksgiving Day and today. So it's an important part of the overall online spend for the holidays. But I do want to make one comment with respect to the online spending. So in 2019, uh, online spending was 15% of all retail spending. So 85% was done in a physical store. This year, it's gonna be higher. It's gonna be maybe closer to 20%, but this is well below the levels of online spending that occurred during the pandemic. A lot of consumers, obviously concerned about their health, shopped online and that went up to close to 40%, but that didn't change consumer behavior permanently. It just did so for a short period of time. Consumers still wanna see physical goods in person and over 166 million consumers 
went to the mall for the stores that were open on Thanksgiving through yesterday. That's an increase even versus 2019. The battles for the parking spots continue. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they do. Uh, Well, you know, actually, Maureen, one of the things that's interesting is that because the pressure of the doorbuster specials where inventories were limited, where, you know, consumers would, would line up at four in the morning and parking was at a premium, retailers really have tried to offer, even when they have those incredible doorbuster specials, like $199 for a 42-inch TV, they have this, it, it in stock or they'll give someone a rain check. So the pressure to be there at the very beginning is much less. So what malls have seen in particular is that there's been steady traffic throughout the day and consumers are leaving satisfied. All right, then. I've been speaking with Miro Kopik. He's a marketing expert and professor at San Diego State University. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. Much appreciated. Now that Thanksgiving has come and gone, health officials are closely monitoring how holiday get-togethers might impact flu and other respiratory cases across the county. Joining me now with more on the regional flu outlook is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. Always great to be here. What's the latest on flu cases in San Diego County? In short, uh, flu season is here and it's coming here in a very fast way. Um, We're seeing a a large uh, spike in cases, um, and this is before we normally see cases. I mean, just for November, for example, we're already at 6,000 cases and there's still obviously time left to count. That's the highest in at least 10 years for November. So uh, definitely seeing a lot of flu cases compared to last year when we didn't really have a flu season. And we're coming out of Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Isn't it usually common, though, to see a jump in cases after the holidays? You know, I I wouldn't say necessarily out of the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, Typically with flu, we see if if you look at, you know, pre-pandemic years, December and January is when we see a lot of the cases. Um, But if you look at the graphs this year, I mean, the line is, is, uh, is before those other lines going up and it's shooting up a little bit straighter. So Already 10,000 cases this year. So health officials think, you know, talking to local hospitals that, you know, we could be just on the beginning here. You know, flu season typically starts in October. So uh, we could be in for a rough one this year. So what are health officials urging San Diegans to do to protect themselves? Well, the good thing about flu is that there's a vaccine for it, and it really helps uh, to prevent the illness and helps to you know lower the acuity of illness. So, um, and we're hearing that the flu vaccine is working better this year in years past. So, doctors are saying that you know if you haven't gotten your flu shot, that's a, a reason to go get it. Um, but yes, recommending people get their vaccines. Um, something to keep in mind too, Jade. Uh, just like with COVID nineteen, which they're also recommending vaccines for ahead of a potential winter surge. Uh, it takes about two weeks for that to get into your system. So, you know, like if you're you know, going to go home for Christmas or, or, or for the holidays or for the new year, um, make sure you get that at least two weeks before you go home in order to have that protection. Is the county currently dealing with a large number of flu-related hospitalizations? So we know that this year more people are presenting to the emergency room with flu-like illness compared to years past, and, and it's happening earlier this year. Now, nationwide, we know that you know during this time of the year, we're seeing the most hospitalizations nationwide at this time of year going back to the 2010 flu season. So 
nationwide, it's hitting very hard. Uh, here in San Diego County, officials are preparing for what could be coming. Um, they're you know putting up these uh, sort of uh, standby tents. They, they've already been up uh, for the last two years with COVID um, when they had you know more than uh, 1,600 hospitalizations. Um, those tents are there and they're used for overflow, used for screening. Um, and so we could see those come back, but hospital officials are preparing for what could be coming, not seeing a huge burden as it relates to flu right now, though. All right, so hospitalizations are low, but we know in some years uh, the flu has been very deadly. Uh, do we have any sense of what the situation is this year? Yeah, Jade, you know, back in 2017, 2018, that flu season, we had a particularly bad year where we had 343 San Diegans who lost their lives. Um, if you look back at last season, which we didn't have much of a flu season, there were eight deaths. Uh, so far this year, we've had uh, five deaths. Flu cases are still high, according to the latest countywide count. Do health officials expect this number to increase? Yes, definitely hospital officials think that we're on the beginning of this. Uh, as I mentioned, flu season typically runs like from October to April. Um, in October, we saw 3,000 cases, which is high for October generally. Uh, in November, we saw a doubling already at 6,000 cases. Um, so it really remains to be seen where this goes. But, uh, you know, hospital officials think that we're just at the beginning of this. And we're now firmly in the holiday season. Officials for a while now have been warning about a triple-demic of flu, COVID, and RSV cases later this year. Uh, is that what we're seeing now? We're definitely seeing uh, more cases of COVID, RSV, and the flu. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily translating into hospital hospitalizations or, or affecting hospital capacity. Um, for instance, if you look at COVID-19, um, you know, a, a in late October, early November, we had about 100 hospitalizations, which is relatively very low. Um, and now we're just at over 200 uh, people hospitalized in San Diego County with COVID. Um, but it's sort of interesting. If you look at the last winter surge where we had you know, well over 1,000 San Diegans hospitalized, if you look at you know this October and this November, they're comparable to when we saw that line shoot up, when we saw that winter surge. Um, so that's why there's a concern here. Uh, I also say um, there's sort of a silver lining as it relates to COVID hospitalizations. Uh, the number of San Diegans in the intensive care unit has definitely gone down. We're not seeing as severe illness. So what should people know about a flu shot if they haven't already gotten one? I would say that kids can get a flu shot too. You know, I remember when I was a kid getting a flu shot every single year, and they're really pushing it for kids because if you look at the age breakdown, half of the cases in October and this month are those ages five to 17 years old. So we're seeing a lot of minors coming down with the flu. Um, and when you talk to hospital officials, you know, how come we're seeing RSV cases early this year? How come we're seeing more flu cases in children? Um, you know, during COVID, a lot of kids, you know, they literally weren't going to school, maybe not hang out with other people. So they weren't necessarily getting exposed to these viruses. So they're thinking now that, you know, some of these kids who maybe are five and six who are coming down with RSV, it's because they didn't have that exposure when they were two or three years old. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. 
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This week, UC San Diego is holding a webinar to assess the results of the latest International Climate Summit. COP27, which concluded in Egypt a week ago, was, by all accounts, a tumultuous meeting. It was plagued by political disputes among the nations. Participants refused to agree on a pledge to eliminate the use of fossil fuels. And climate scientists criticized the pace of emissions reductions worldwide. But COP27 also did what some considered impossible. The nations agreed to establish a loss and damage fund to help poorer nations recover from the increasingly devastating effects of climate change. Joining me is Emily Carlton, research associate at UC San Diego's Deep Decarbonization Initiative, who attended COP27 in Egypt. And Emily, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. Now, the overall assessment of COP27 seems to be that it didn't do too much to advance the world's climate action goals. Do you agree? Well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of pessimism around COP27 if you're looking only at the formal negotiations. You know, the formal negotiations, everyone was talking about how they didn't really do much to advance um, ambition, come out with new, stronger pledges to reduce emissions or, or move away from fossil fuels. But I think that more and more, the real place to look for action is around the edges of the formal negotiations to the small groups of, of countries and firms that really are taking action on the ground to change things. And I think that ultimately, we've looked for a long time to the formal negotiations for promises. Promises can be broken and often have been broken. So what really matters is these actions that are going on on the, on the ground. And paying attention to those, I think that there is a lot actually to be optimistic about what are the factors that are hampering the adoption of stricter limits on fossil fuel production? Well, I think there's a lot of them. I think, you know, the classic one is that there are a lot of vested interests in fossil fuels. There are a lot of countries who really depend on fossil fuels for their whole economy. There are a lot of communities, even within our own country in the United States, that depend on fossil fuels like coal for jobs and for prosperity. So so I think that that's, that makes the transition very scary and, and, you know, politically kind of a tough a tough thing. And I, I think that the transition offers a lot of opportunity for those communities to be engaged in other kinds of things in their economy and, and to do well. But I think until people really start to see that happening on the ground, I think that there's going to be some backlash. I also think that obviously the war in, in Ukraine, the, the global energy crisis is another factor. I think that, you know, faced with the reality of, of scarcity of natural gas and fossil fuels and people not being able to keep their their homes warm in the winter, I think that that is, at least in the short term, making it hard to to transition very quickly. Although that said, I, I also think that those concerns are, are also reinforcing the need to, in the long term, move away from fossil fuels, which are coming from very, you know, specific regions in the world, and towards, you know, harnessing the resources that countries have, like wind and solar, etc. I want to play a clip uh, from UN Secretary Antonio Guterres. This is what he had to say at COP27 on November 7th. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. Emily, are most climate scientists now resigned to the fact that the world will not limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius? I think that increasingly, yes, you know, scientists and myself included are skeptical that we will keep warming below 1.5. 
you know, that's a scary message for sure. But I also think on the other side, you know, five or 10 years ago, the worst case scenarios were, you know, four or five, maybe even six degrees of warming. I think that those scenarios as well are becoming pretty unlikely. So I think that, you know, while there's definitely truth to warming is happening, it's probably going to be more than 1.5. And that has big, scary implications. I also think that um, it's not all doom and gloom. You know, progress is being made in a lot of niche markets around the world. Things are changing. Momentum is building. Well, one of the surprising developments in COP27 is the agreement on creating a loss and damage fund. Tell us about that. I think that that was kind of a surprise, actually, for me, at least, you know, loss and damage is separate from other kinds of climate finance, you know, other types of climate finance that that's been in conversation a long time. That's for you know mitigating the emissions that cause warming and adapting to the impacts. But there's never been a specific mechanism for compensating the most vulnerable countries for the destruction that's happening already because of climate change. And the most visible example at COP27 was Pakistan um, because of the massive flooding that they've recently seen and all the destruction and, and suffering that that's caused. You know, the developing countries came to this COP really demanding that something actually be done to compensate them for for these impacts that they're really not responsible for. And I think a lot of people going into it thought that this was really a non-starter, right? A lot of developed countries, including the United States, went in saying, you know, there's absolutely no way we're going to be able to compensate, you know, all the developing countries of the world for all this destruction. And so I think that the agreement to create a fund was surprising and and probably like a good step in the right direction. That said, the fund is currently an empty fund. No no money has been promised. No details have been worked out. No decisions on who is going to put money into the fund, who's going to receive money out of the fund. So I think that this was so far very much a symbolic win. And I think that a lot of the optimism is sort of a result of managed expectations. You know, we didn't think that anything was going to happen. And so the symbolic win is, is still a win. But I think that we can look forward to lots of fighting about the details in the coming years. Well, now that COP27 is over, UC San Diego is holding a webinar, a climate forum that's meeting on Wednesday. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So I was very lucky to attend COP27 along with four current students at the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. And so the webinar is a chance for us to come and sort of have a panel discussion sharing what we learned, what we took away from it, and also just some of the excitement of being there on the ground. And can the public attend? Certainly, yes. If you just go to the home webpage of the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, you'll see a link to join. It's, it's a virtual webinar and it's open to, to everyone. I've been speaking with Emily Carton. She's a research associate at UC San Diego's Deep Decarbonization Initiative. And she attended COP27 in Egypt just last week. And Emily, thank you for speaking with us. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. UC San Diego's webinar on COP27 will take place on November 30th at 3.30. A changing climate is threatening the beloved Joshua trees in the Mojave Desert, but for years, California officials have struggled to decide whether to list the western Joshua tree as an endangered species. And the reason for the hesitation is that climate change has not been used before as a reason a species might go extinct. Kaylee Wells from member station KCRW reports. 
It starts with a member of the public petitioning to the California Fish and Game Commission that a species needs protection. The Western Joshua Trees champion is a guy named Brendan Cummings. 15 or so years ago, I did the litigation that forced the Bush administration to protect the polar bear under the Federal Endangered Species Act. He's conservation director for the Center of Biological Diversity. He's litigated plenty of Endangered Species Act cases, but this one's personal. He's got dozens of them in his backyard here in the town of Joshua Tree. If you look around us here, the adult Joshua trees we're seeing were recruited into the population under a climate that no longer exists. But the case he's making isn't easy. California has never listed a species because it's threatened by climate change. There are still millions of them spanning thousands of square miles. When you list a plant as endangered, you have to either avoid killing it or move it to a new place or pay a fee for killing it. Kelly Herbinson says it's worth the trouble. She's the co-executive director of the Mojave Desert Land Trust. What we're seeing right now is unprecedented. This is serious. (laughs) And I, I don't know that that's always obvious if you're not doing this every day and working on the land every day and the effects. At lower elevations, the western Joshua tree is facing the worst drought in more than a thousand years. But if you were to go to, say, the West Mojave, I mean, they're mostly brown. In its middle elevations, the Joshua tree's habitat has been checkerboarded into small islands by decades of development. Joshua trees are similar to everything else, where as soon as you start fragmenting their habitat, they're going to start to suffer because they're not able to um, have that genetic flow between populations. And then, of course, at its higher elevations, the Joshua tree is facing a threat it rarely encountered before. We're having significantly increased wildfires across the desert region, across everywhere. There's also the problem of the tree's lifelong partner, the yucca moth. The tree is completely reliant on the moth to survive. And the moth is completely reliant on the tree. But as the climate warms, the moth isn't reproducing like it used to. But after nearly three years at the board meeting in June... Widespread and abundant species tend to be less vulnerable to extinction. The Department of Fish and Wildlife determined that there just isn't compelling evidence that the tree could go extinct in the foreseeable future, that it has time to adapt to climate change. So they recommended the commission vote against listing. But almost all of the peer-reviewed scientists said that finding was wrong, and hundreds of members of the public showed up to voice their opinions. In one corner, you've got local politicians. Listing the Joshua tree as an endangered species will have permanent economic damages to the livelihood of my constituents. The local water board, building developers, the labor unions. This would take away a lot of the jobs that solar companies provide for us to do out there in in the vast desert that's out there. Saying that listing an abundant tree would hurt development and jobs. But then in the other corner, with conservationists and scientists, you've got national politicians like Senator Dianne Feinstein and local tribal groups. It's so intertwined in our history, our traditions, our stories. Everything includes these Joshua trees, and we owe it to them. They've protected us. They've provided for us. All making the case that the western Joshua tree is disappearing. The commission ended up putting off the decision until February. Cummings says he doubts the fight will even end then. Various business interests will undoubtedly sue. And conversely, if the commission votes against protecting Joshua trees, I will sue, (laughs) attempting to overturn, you know, that unscientific decision. 
And Herbinson says even though the road ahead to saving the Western Joshua Tree is long, she feels optimistic. I think we can do it. I really think we can do it. This is affecting all the species out here. And that we, we're coming up with ways to do it. I'm Kaylee Wells in Joshua Tree. Even though rents in San Diego County have dropped for two straight months, average prices are still too high for many to afford, and housing is in short supply. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer has a look at what some say could be part of the solution. A prefabricated house may look like most other modern homes, but the process to get there is rather different. Well, prefabricated simply means that it's built in a factory off-site. That's Todd Kessler. He's the president of U.S. Modular, a company that specializes in manufactured and modular housing. For some people, there's a stigma about prefab housing. Kessler says getting past that is one of the biggest challenges. We used to say that you know they were like your grandmother's trailers back in the day in that they focused so much on being affordable that the quality really wasn't there. In today's uh, pre-manufactured housing, the quality is there and they're still less expensive than site-built structures. How much less expensive? Roughly 10 to 30% cheaper than traditional on-site construction. And Kessler says it can be done faster. David Lynch is adding a manufactured home next to his own house in El Cajon. And everything's ready to go. So you, you just get the efficiency of time um, and then the cost is substantially less than having to do a custom build, which we've gone through before so we know how painful and how expensive it can be. There are several types of prefab housing, from one-story manufactured homes to whole apartment blocks. Drew Orenstein is the CEO of Impact Housing, which develops modular housing complexes. Orenstein sees them as a way to build high-quality multifamily homes in a quicker and more cost-effective way that he says will improve the lives of low and moderate income households. We take the cost savings, we take the time savings, and we translate that into what we hope to be a reduction in their rental price point. Um, but you know, it's everything starting from about $1,500 and then up. Orenstein says his company is bringing more of these complexes to the region, including a potential 900 unit development in Barrio Logan. But there are concerns in the community that there won't be units for very low-income families, according to Barrio Logan's Julie Corrales. Um, so unless you're building um, affordable housing and incorporating affordable housing units into every development in our community, you're displacing folks. The state and region's policy shift to a Build Now approach has begun to open the doors for more prefabricated housing in the county. In fact, a modular housing manufacturing facility is coming to the Imperial Valley next spring and is expected to serve San Diego County. Pete Gombert co-founded the company called Indie Dwell. We can build it with labor that have a great job living where they are uh, and then ship the units to a high cost market. He says a perk of modular housing construction is that it can come in all shapes and sizes. So it also works for smaller units to shelter those experiencing homelessness. Those units are about 380 square feet. They're studios. So we go, we've actually got a 260 square foot micro studio that we do. But some projects could be up to seven stories due to their use of steel frames instead of wood with bigger units. We've got some larger projects where we're doing two or three bedrooms that are 960 to 1100 square feet. Regardless of the size, financing prefabricated developments can be an issue, partly because it's a newer industry in the U.S. and there aren't many developers. 
Sean Harris is with San Diego Commercial and Business Financing. It'll be easier the longer we go, the, the more builders of this type there are out there. Um, I would say with this type of an asset, you're going to get a, this type of a project, you're going to get a lot of help from the city. So that that uh, that deflects some of the risk for an investor. Back in El Cajon, the speed and savings of getting a prefabricated home are allowing Lynch to list the unit under market value with a young family in mind. A one bedroom, two bedroom place to rent is already expensive. It's ridiculous. So the families need a bit more space. You know, so this is a three bedroom. They have capacity to grow, like with a couple kids. Amid a housing crisis that's taken the hardest toll on low and middle income earners, backers of prefabricated housing say it offers a glimmer of hope to provide a quality home for rent or purchase at a lower cost that can be move in ready in a fraction of the time. That story was reported by KPBS's Jacob Ayer, and he joins me now. Jacob, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. When some of us think of prefabricated homes, we think of older trailers, but they've come a long way over the decades. Describe what these homes look like today. So they do have a pretty wide variety of looks. Prefabricated is kind of this catch-all term for any type of housing unit or home that's built off-site. So that includes both manufactured homes, formerly called mobile homes, and then also modular housing. Modern manufactured homes, which again, those formerly mobile homes, they come in a wide variety of sizes, but the overall quality is now pretty similar to traditional site-built homes. They can look like most small to medium-sized houses, and the interior, they have high-end finishes that are now being offered in the units. So modular housing can look like anything from a small temporary shelter for those experiencing homelessness, all the way to high-end luxury homes, and then they even have this possibility for massive modern apartment complexes. And that's because modular housing can actually be stacked on top of one another. And Jacob, you write that there is a stigma for this kind of housing, and it's acknowledged by people even within the prefab housing industry. Why is that? That's right. And I think the stigma is particularly around manufactured housing more than modular. Manufactured housing, you know, its previous history being called mobile homes, seen as kind of a lesser than product for people to actually live in. As I touched on previously, many of the modern products in inside are almost of the same quality, if not the same, or in some cases, even higher quality than traditional builds. I think there is still the big concern regarding property value of a manufactured home and the fact that you have to put it on a permanent foundation if you want it to be a structure that can stay in place rather than just being on rented land in a traditional mobile home park or something to that degree. That being said, I think the future for manufactured homes is definitely growing. And in terms of modular housing, there's not too much of a stigma at this point. It's more of a worry in terms of investors who just haven't seen enough of the product so far. So I think if you can address both the stigma of the past products regarding manufactured housing and then the risk of just not knowing what a modular complex would look like, those two things, if you're able to address them, will actually lead to more of these types of developments in the region. And, and tell me, why are these prefabricated homes cheaper than traditional on-site construction and by how much? So prefab homes overall tend to be more affordable 
because the factory build isn't slowed down by permitting or weather delays. So the construction process is actually sped up in that regard. And then on top of that, the factory build style where they're actually constructing in an offsite location, it's cheaper to produce the same units because they're constructing them in large quantities. So that's going to be cutting down on costs anywhere from roughly 10 to 30 and in some cases even 40%. That being said, manufactured builds tend to be a bit cheaper than modular housing builds on average. How fast are they able to be constructed and what's the quality like compared to on-site construction? So from the folks in the industry that I spoke with, the time savings can range from about 25 to 50%, so pretty significant. And that number goes even a little higher for manufactured housing. While modular housing complexes are possible by creating many identical units, the final product is nearly indistinguishable from a traditional site-built structure. Manufactured homes still do have a certain look that is somewhat noticeable from the outside, but the interiors are now pretty comparable to a traditional on-site build. The biggest thing about manufactured units is they may not appreciate in value, like a modular or traditional build will. You spoke with Drew Orenstein, the CEO of Impact Housing, and he pointed out that the rent on modular housing units is even cheaper. How is that? He was referring to kind of modular housing units as a whole, and he said his company looks to develop previously underserved areas to provide what he says is housing for low and middle income individuals and families, uh, starting around about $1,500 a unit. He told me that's possible because of the money that they save on construction costs and then the total time it actually takes to build. And where is prefabricated housing being built in the San Diego area? So the industry's kind of in its infancy right now. Ornstein's company is one of the bigger players in the region. They have a couple throughout the city of San Diego, ranging from complexes just in the dozens of units, all the way up to a potential 900-unit complex that's being proposed right now in Barrio Logan. There is another manufactured facility coming to the region this upcoming spring, so don't be surprised if you see a lot more complexes being proposed and then built in the near future. What's the expected impact on the housing market and housing cost in the those areas. I think that's the big question that you asked there. Um, the immediate effect from what Ornstein told me is it might not be too much outside of the particular units that they're offering in terms of cost savings. So for the folks who are able to get in, they're kind of lucky to some degree. He's hoping the long-term impacts will be because there's more units that are being offered at lower prices and they're coming out quicker, it'll hopefully lower the overall costs for housing units in the entire region. Even though these homes are more affordable, you mentioned there are some concerns about housing for low-income families. What can you tell us about that? That's right. So one of the big concerns is that these developments are able to be built without specific units being set aside for affordable income houses. That's because a lot of the units are already at a lower price point than what's market value. So for the folks who are on the very low end of the income spectrum, whether they're extremely low income or very low income, these units might still be out of their potential monthly budget. So that is something that is going to need to be addressed in the future if this is going to be a solution for all of the spectrum of affordable housing. I've been speaking with Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. 
So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Earlier this year, the Cheech Marin Center for Chicano Art and Culture opened in Riverside. Famous for the comedy duo Cheech and Chong, Cheech Marin is an avid collector of Chicano art. The new museum, known as the Cheech, is the first major museum dedicated to Chicano art. One of the first exhibitions on view is a retrospective of works from local border artists, the Delatori Brothers. Museum goers are greeted by a commissioned two-story lenticular sculpture by the brothers as they enter the museum. Einar and Hamax Delatori spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans about the Cheech earlier this year. She started by asking Einar about about what it was like to be a part of the museum opening. Well, it's um, it was fruition after being involved with this project for so many years. I mean, it originally got started with the um, National Latino Center from the Smithsonian, and then Cheech picked it up from there. So it's a uh, dovetailed, <laughs> but we're thrilled. And how about you, Hamex? Well, it's a pretty gigantic honor for us to to be the first exhibition for the Cheech Museum, a brand new museum and a brand new wing of the Smithsonian too. So it's a, it's a double-edged effort here that brought this to fruition and we feel very, very honored. Can you talk about your work that is currently featured in the Cheech? Well, it's um, almost 30 years uh, of retrospective um, that has uh, taken a long time to compile. So we've been really busy this year. Uh, some old installations that we have not installed in a decade uh, so it's been uh, really interesting to pull out old work and, and and how we feel, you know, you sort of get to look at how you feel about the work you made 20 years ago or, or 10 years ago. And it's a, a, it, it's a strange feeling seeing your career sort of displayed like that. You've also installed a two-story sculpture. It's lenticular, so the image changes as you move around it. Tell us about this one. Yeah, when the when the architects uh, first approached us about the possibility of installing a permanent piece to the museum, they had decided to open up an atrium because the museum, you might know, it used to be the central library in Riverside. So it's got library-style floors. So when they, they opened this at- atrium, it magically became a, a museum. And it gave us the opportunity to make a two-story high lenticular piece. The lenticular piece that uh, we decided to make is a, a, a homage to an Aztec deity, Maybe Anna can tell you more about the lenticular process. Yeah, so the lenticular process is a um, an old technology that uses a plastic uh, lens or acrylic lens that has little lines in it. And then you take two images and cut half of it out and leave the same lines and interlace another image. And with that lens, what it does is it acts like a prism where you can see one image and as you move it sideways, you'll see the other image. Hmm. And do you remember the first time you met Cheech and he showed interest in your artwork? One of the large installation pieces featured called Oxymodern. He was interested in it. He was uh, taping Nash Bridges up in San Francisco, living in San Francisco. And we drove our VW bus up there with the piece, assembled it in his living room. And he said, oh, great, I'll take it. 
And then we proceeded to go out to lunch and uh, found him to be very, very affable, very, very, you know, interestingly, a very funny guy. And what role does humor play in your art? How do you approach that? Humor is hugely important, you know, in, in our artwork. Almost every piece has an angle that's, uh, that's humorous. We see humor as, a, as the hook that bring it, reels you in and helps you take your guard down and, and be more in the moment. I think uh, that's part of our personality. And it's interesting, you know, because uh, when we first came to the States, our introduction to Chich Marin was through his uh, records with Chich and Chong, Big Bamboo. And the first, uh, the first weeks that we're here in the States, we were hearing them with, with our cousins. And that was the introduction to, indirect introduction to Chicano culture to, for us. So your work has been shown in galleries and museums across the world. What makes the Cheech unique? Well, the Cheech is uh, the first self-proclaimed Chicano museum. And uh, we, you know, we've shown uh, in as Mexicans, as Americans, as border artists. And in this case, we're uh, as Chicano artists. So it is unique in, 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 that, in that way and in the way that it, it's going to redefine what all of these um, different surnames mean because the Mexican-American, you know, Mexican parts of the country don't use the word Chicano particularly. Um, there's third generation Mexican in Chicago, for instance. So it'll be really interesting to see how this uh, this museum sort of broadens some of these definitions and, and becomes the, the inclusive museum. So a lot of San Diegans might know you from the huge, colorful installation in the downtown library's main elevator. Would you tell us a little bit about that work as well? We have made eight large public art projects. Uh, the library downtown is one of our favorite ones because it was a sweet opportunity. We were given the elevator shaft to engage, and we decided to make a series of boxes that act like uh, dioramas as you go up in the elevator that they can tell a little bit of a story about ascending through, through learning and knowledge. And that, this is, that was the first time that we installed lenticulars in, in a public art space. We also have a large lenticular and another public art sculpture at the San Isidro Public Library. A little out of the way, but uh, it's worth visiting too. And you both are cross-border artists and you work in the San Diego border region. What role would you say the border plays in your artwork? I'm actually talking to you from our studio in Baja and Einar from our place in San Diego. So yes, we are completely cross-border. Later on today, we're both going to work in the studio in Baja. I think that is crossing the border and the realities that we live crossing the border back and forth is probably the, the most important thing that uh, feeds our work. So as we see ourselves as border artists, probably it's the most comfortable hat that we wear in terms of all the definitions because we're also a glass artists and many people know us for our blown glass sculpture. So uh, out of all of them, I think that's the one that describes us the best because the border informs our work quite a bit. It is the ability to see the other place as other, in other words, as like a fish tank. You're you're looking at it from, from the other side. And I think it's a way to see your own culture that you're living in uh, with a different perspective. That was local artist Einar and Hamax Delatore speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon Evans. The Delatore brothers' work is on view at the Cheech Marin Center for Chicano Art and Culture of the Riverside Art Museum through January 22, 2023.